Hey, Bells, welcome to Team Up Moves. I'm Fiona. And I'm Stephanie, and this is the podcast where we play superhero role-playing games and then talk about them. And we are going to be doing the talking today. We are covering Mutant City Blues, and this is by Robin D. Laws and Gareth Ryder Hanrahan, and published by Pelgrane Press. But before we do that, Steph, how's the book tour going? Book tour has not gone yet, but by the time this episode drops, uh, there will be a book tour with a whole bunch of videos of me online and real live readings in Boston and its suburbs, Minneapolis and New York City. All right. Yeah, because this month you are promoting We Are Mermaids from Grey Wolf Press, and we have been including some readings at the end of these episodes. So listeners, stay tuned after the discussion, before the credits, for another poem from Stephanie Burt. At the end, at the end. I hope it's worth waiting for, but I'm the last person to judge that. I, I hope you enjoy the book if you, you know, if you pick it up. Is it real real solid self-promotion here, Steph? It, it, I mean, <laughs> honestly, the hard sell does not work with me. Okay, uh, fair enough. All right, gay, superhero, poems, Stephanie Burt, those are your four categories. If you're into two out of four, at least, I think this book is worth it. I mean, there's also punctuation marks and mermaids. Excellent. I like those things and, too. And, and weather in New Zealand. There's a lot, really. I, I apologize if I'm selling this book short on its range of topics. You are not. All right. Well, let's get back to what our guests are here for, and that's to talk Mutant City Blues. And first, I want to introduce Shayna Hausman. They played Aubergine, the tech wizard, technopath of Lick Incorporated. Shayna, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Uh, quite well, quite well. Excited to, to talk. I love these Back Matter episodes. They're a lot of fun to do. I'm excited, too. It's my turn to introduce Rachel Gold, uh, a professor at McAllister College and an author of really terrific queer and trans young adult novels, including most recently Sinclair, that's S-Y-N-C-L-A-I-R, and they will be playing Micah Nichols, the charismatic master of disguise. How's it going, Rachel? It's going It's going great. Uh, looking forward to, to digging into the details of the system and, uh, and our storyline. Great. Well, we start the discussion with the origin story and talking about character creation, both for these specific characters and sort of what the system asks of players and GMs in general. And I wanted to start with you, Rachel. Could you kind of talk about what you went through, sort of thinking and then mathing out to build Micah? Yeah, certainly. One of the things that I appreciate about the system is that Quaid diagram where all the powers are um, linked to each other in very interesting ways. I do a lot of computer and video gaming, and it reminded me of talent trees. Oh, yeah. So so it felt very familiar. I was like, oh, great. I know how to use one of these. Um, and it also limited me in really interesting ways. You know, it can be daunting to come into character creation and just be like, okay, make anything. Great. Um, so I started just looking at the diagram a lot and kind of identifying clusters of powers I thought I could afford. Mm -hmm. But I also, you know, I was having a little psychology moment. And I was like, oh, I want to do something shadow side um, since my current ongoing game right now is not my shadow side. No, it's not. It's not. It's not. It's my cheerful side. Um, so I was like, oh, I want a manipulator. Like I want someone who's really manipulative and trying to use these powers for good and not evil. And so then after I talked to you, Fiona, about that briefly, we ended up with starting from emotion control 
And and the mechanics of that seemed really fun too. The fact that they had it mapped out in a whole wheel, and mm-hmm. you know, like the amount that you can stir someone's emotion, de- you know, depends on how many points you're spending. So yeah, once we had that, it was just a matter of what else can I afford? Um, can I, can I get down to observe dreams? You know, right. So so coming from that, then, um, and I think the I forget the name of it, but the kind of weaknesses that you have to take are really interesting. Yeah, so we, we didn't end up seeing this in the actual play, but interspersed in the Quaid diagram on some of the lines between powers are genetic risk factors or GRFs that are sort of related to these specific powers like near fangs and possession, there is plasma deficiency for your blood. There's megalomania. Uh, Rachel, what was the one that you ended up taking? I actually forget what I ended up taking, but I'm going to tell you the one I was inspired by, um, which I'm not sure I took because I think it was one line away, but but went into this character. What I was inspired by was like basically meta-identity disorder, where it was mm. your hero, like at least the way I read it, like my hero has a whole bunch of secret identities. Um, and I just thought that was a really good idea for a manipulative character is someone who kind of went undercover and that almost broke them and they made all these identities and just loved playing with people. So that so all of those pieces went into into Micah's backstory in terms of like crime family, going into the cops and then hating that, <laughs> getting real messed up and undercover and leaving to join this this PI firm, but having all of this messiness. Yeah. I'm going to go look at the Quaid diagram so that I can tell you what it was I actually took, but I'm going to say that separately. <laughs> it so was poor, poor impulse control, as I remember. Oh, that's, that's, very, that's very me. Um, so I, I, I believe I had a note down that uh, Kerrigan may have tried to flirt with you at some point, but uh, you blew that out of the water with the way you all treated her. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, once I have the ability to change people's emotions, I just want to walk around all day doing it. I mean, I should have put more points in that. I could have changed everybody's. <laughs> I think it's also worth uh, mentioning, you talked about how the emotion control had that that wheel and it's very specific. And again, that is a, a part of Mutant City Blues that not only are the powers grouped in this precise Quaid diagram way, but the way that they each work is also very specific because that also ties into kind of the logic of, of the clues and, and kind of how the, the investigation piece comes together. Shana, I wanted to, to jump over you and, and talk about Aubergine and both the powers that you took and then the investigative abilities, because that's kind of a, you know, again, a, a thing that's in the gumshoe system that Mutant City Blues is built on. One of the real special parts is the investigative abilities. So can you talk about kind of what you chose and how you built Obi? Yeah. So I started knowing that we could use a tech character um, and I like playing tech characters and there's this whole technomancy power. There was a lot of me well, I, I did not understand the K diagram at first. Yet <laughs> you had to help me figure that out. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I still would say I don't totally understand it, but I understand the corner that I was in. Right. And so once we got to technomancy, there were other ones. There was um, the technokinesis. Right. Yeah, there's technokinesis. There's, and then we sort of went down and I ended up getting telepathy too. Yeah, telepathy was sort of nearby and you're like, well, I, I guess I can talk in people's brains. Like that could come in useful. I thought it could be like a whole walkie-talkie thing, um, which didn't end up happening. But, you know, if we had split up or been sneaking in somewhere, it would have been great. Yeah. Instead, I just use it to like fill people in instead of talking at one point. <laughs> and then besides that, I used the when you are short on time because you've been very busy and procrastinating 
it is great to p- make a character with a mysterious backstory because then there you, go. you have less that you have to figure out or <laughs> more that you have to figure out. But, you know, pro tip, life hack. Love it. Yeah, you can you, you can figure it out later or, you know, make the GM figure it out. Or if it's a one shot, just leave it. Exercise for the listener. Mm-hmm. As well as putting the points into making, you know, choosing your superpowers off the Quaid diagram, you also got to choose a whole host of investigative powers that would you could use during the case. What were some of the ones that that you kind of latched onto for for Obi? So obviously, I went with some of like the mechanical ones. Um, I went with some cryptography because I love code breaking. I remember that there were some of them. Some of them were like you know reading people or dealing with people and like being good at tact and talking to people. And I didn't take any of those. Yep. Save those points. I saw those and I was like, that is a good one for someone else. My character cannot do that. But then I kind of just like went with all the ones that looked really nerdy, except I think account, uh, financial. Forensic accounting you specifically did not take. And yeah. Yeah. I saw forensic accounting and I decided that was probably too nerdy for my character. Or differently nerdy, I guess, if I'm going to be nice. Yeah. Differently nerdy. That's good. That's good. Steph, do you want to tell us something about Clarissa? I want to tell you so many things about Clarissa. I loved playing this character, uh, perhaps not wisely, but too well. I don't know. Clarissa, I this character creation process compared to other games we've played together, and I think just most other superhero games, is very directed both by what kind of game it is and by the Quaid diagram, which is really central to Mutant City Blues, both in creation and in play. I wanted two things for the private investigator that I was making. I wanted someone who had analytic taste so that I could do little high school chemistry lessons because I loved high school chemistry. And I wanted someone who could work with material evidence and do the chemical and material science part of investigations they like textures and tastes and smells. And I also wanted someone who could easily move from place to place for an investigative thing. Someone who was maybe had a, a complicated relationship to mass and to existing in a physical body and someone who could phase that being an interest of mine. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the Quaid diagram makes it almost impossible to create a character who can do both of those things. I, I wanted a kind of physics, material, science, chemistry themed character who would give science lessons about how atoms are mostly empty space and they get together in different combinations just by existing. You can't do that in this game because analytic taste and phasing and analytic touch and disintegration and matter manipulation are just too far apart on the diagram. Your character does not have enough points to do that if you're playing the game the way it's designed. I also learned by reading about these powers that in an investigative game, Phasing, the ability to basically go anywhere, is one of the most effective and dangerous powers that you can have because it makes almost all barriers uh, not barriers. And so it is what's called an Article 18 power, which is to say that it is tightly regulated and controlled and you have to register, as you do for things like you know, radiation emissions that are dangerous. And it's also a power that's designed so that you're using up your points every time you use the power and you can't do very much of it in any given, uh, you know, play session or arc. Right. And I had not had any of those thoughts because I'm not used to investigative games. And I 
made what I think was the right choice for Clarissa Marlowe, and I chose taste and chemistry over phasing and matter manipulation, and I just created a character I was not expecting to create just around wanting to be able to touch things with my tongue and figure out exactly what their molecular structure was. It turns out that analytic taste, either uh, the way the diagram works, if you go north on the diagram, you create a character who explodes and is dangerous and prone to depression. Or if you go south on the diagram, you're pretty much creating a lizard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, You get powers like secrete acid, spit acid, stingers, spit venom, command amphibians or reptiles, scare people, and anxiety. And that was an easy choice for me. I don't want to give everyone around me cancer, and I love lizards, and I think about anxiety a lot. So I ended up with Calorso Marlowe, who looks like a Mexican beaded lizard and spits venom, secretes acid, and has a big old chip on her poikilothermic shoulder uh, about her inability to have a career in the gallery art world. And I had so much fun playing her and a lot of fun figuring out the Quaid diagram. Yeah. And I love how these three characters came together and and how you fit them together. You know, we had the physical evidence side, we had the electronic evidence side, and then we had the, I guess, emotional and communicative evidence side uh, across the, the three of you. And part of that, I think, was you all working together and creating a good balance. And then the other element of that is that There are these investigative abilities in gumshoe games like Mutant City Blues, and it's set up so that across the, you know, 30 or so of these, you're given enough points such that all of them should be covered. And part of that is, I think, a conceit sort of to pre-written adventures. In other words, you can assume that any party is going to be able to get any of the clues that are written down because someone's got art history, someone's got ballistics. But it does almost enforce mechanically that if you at least want those investigative abilities to make sense to your character, you do have a balanced team that can do a variety of things. I I loved it. And it it, it reminded me a little bit of character creation in dungeon crawl games in things like Dungeons and Dragons, where you want to be sure you've got a healer and a tank and a spellcaster and so on. And it requires the players to coordinate about who has what power during character creation, which other superhero games don't necessarily require or reward. But if if you're going to play Mutant City Blues, you do need to have the players talking during character creation. And we ended up with a chart to be sure that almost all the investigative abilities got covered and a lot of them got used. And I just want to say, thank goodness I took forensic accounting (laughs) because that really came in handy, not only in solving the crime, but in hiding the money that we took later. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. It was really great that someone who wasn't me had it. Shane, when we were talking about that, I'm like, wait, you sure you don't want forensic accounting? Are you sure? Because I'm like, well, there's... That's like the one clue that I knew of. <laughs> uh, anything else on on character? I mean, did you feel what's the feel off of this? Was it was it too limiting? Was it too fiddly? Or did you kind of like those constraints? As I think Rachel, you were mentioning, as 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 creative, you know, that that it pushed you in a, in a direction you might not have gone. I'm always annoyed when I don't understand something, but it didn't last. I thought it was pretty cool once I sort of started to get it. Um, and I did really like the result. I thought that it was really interesting. It really was not like many games I've played before. Um, mm-hmm. And I've played a lot of games. So that's always fun. 
And I really liked the mechanics once we were playing. I think it's different um, doing a one-off versus doing a longer campaign in that, um, you know, I'm, I'm willing to play around a little bit more with the one-off because I'm not going to be doing this character for forever. Um, but also I didn't have a good sense for how my character would extend. And it did look like, I think the Quake diagram is thoughtful enough that if we played this as a long-running campaign, I would have appreciated where I could expand to. So mm-hmm. so I didn't feel too hemmed in by it, um, but I'm a person who likes some creative limitation. And then also the question of, you know, having a limited number of points and what do we skip, what do we take? I liked that, I really liked that we could skip. Um, a lot of times with talent tree systems, you can't skip things and you end up with really weird abilities you don't need. Right. So I liked that we could pay to skip abilities. Me too. I was skeptical about all the constraints that the Quaid diagram and the power descriptions impose on character creations before we started playing. And when we had finished our adventure, I found myself admiring the way that this is built. It's very constrained. It guides you a lot. It holds your hands a lot and says you can do this, but you can't do that as you are making your character. And that is a very different experience from what I think most superhero stories want to be. And most, maybe most players in superhero games want, but it's probably necessary for a superpower-themed investigative game to make sense. And even before you start playing, you see how different investigative, mystery-solving storylines are from other kinds of one-shots and campaigns. And it's really designed for that. I'm, I'm a fan. Yeah, and you know all of these sort of quaid diagram constraints that the players had as the GM in making my GMCs in the parlance of gumshoe, uh, I had to abide by those as well. Now, I could, in theory, use more points. I, you know, Technically, I guess if one had maybe 1,500 points, you could cover all of the Quaid diagram. I mean, you, know, you worked with, I think, like 30 or so. And that's around where I kind of tried to put, you know, Mina and, and Kerrigan and uh, Mike, the guy who torched your car. Uh, so again, that meant that they could come up as clues. And I loved so much the way that once you saw Mina's fangs, you narrowed in so hard on possession and that kind of thing. And then later on in the investigation, Mike was like, wait, what else is connected to fangs? And Clarissa says, well, absorption. And it was like, you're kidding, right? <laughs> this is only coming up now. And, you know, that that was the key that that sort of unlocked that part of the case. Yeah. And I, I also like how the Quaid diagram incorporates various existing characters in sort of Western lore. The reason, the, the out-of-game reason why fangs are connected to these things is that those are things vampires do. Right. And the existence of mutants and mutant powers in this game quasi-explains vampires, werewolves, and other matters of pre-modern fantasy lore. It's also interesting that flight and strength are directly next to each other. And so you can kind of have that quintessential Superman sort of uh, character there too. Yeah, but I believe he cannot have things like cold breath and x-ray vision and stuff. Yeah, it's a little far away. Yeah. All right, the last part of the origin story I want to talk about is the GM prep. And this was very new to me. I got to write a little mystery for you all. And I did mention that you know, Mutant City Blues and other gumshoe games are kind of built up around around modules, I think, of pre-written mysteries. Uh, 
I don't like to use those both personally. And then I think there's rights issues on the show. So I had to make up my own. And it was it was kind of fun. It was also a little tough, I think, to say, like, this is this is the order in which I want you to see things and to pace it out for two hours, but also kind of keep you from skipping, right? That there had to be this clear that you meet Mina before you know she's on the platform. And if you had been able to jump that, I think a lot of the the drama of the story could have fallen apart. In retrospect, Clarissa had, in theory, the ability with a sort of energy trace reading to see whether mutant powers had been used in starting a fire and making an explosion. And you ruled that Clarissa could not use that because that would have really shortcut a lot of the adventure. And I believe that you said not there were no mutant powers, but you can't tell because it's all burned to a crisp. Exactly. And and the amount of awareness and listening that the GM and the players need in these junctures is large, not small. And I think that maybe some of this discussion we might get to later when we when we talk about the play. But I think the final thing that I would want to say as far as the mysteries, and I think this is a really great insight of Gumshoe Games, or at least Mutant City Blues, which is the only one I've actually played, is that there is an idea of a core clue. And that each scene has to have a core clue, unless it's like a purely, you know, backstory or whatever type scene that leads you somewhere else. And I have run investigative games in other systems. Actually, Shayna, we talked about Thirsty Sword Lesbian several times. I swore off investigative games after some of those sessions where I, you know, again, Thirsty Sword Lesbian obviously is not keyed around it, but I was like, okay, they can just look for clues. Like, I'm not going to make them roll. And then, you know, they'll be kissing, et cetera. This will work. Um, I was missing that, like, you really need that core clue. Find this, and then you know where to go. Because without that knowing where to go, the players will just go either anywhere or nowhere. And both of those options, I think, is bad. Now we can go to the letters page. And we always open this with the same question, which is, what is this game trying to do. And Steph, why don't you weigh in on this? This game is trying to do two things. One is it wants the experience of being one of the protagonists in a piece of either hard-boiled detective fiction or police procedural. The kind of, it wants you to be in the kind of plot where things are likely to erupt into violence. Uh, you're not just sitting at home solving mysteries by reading. It's it's not like a Sherlock Holmes kind of game. It wants to give you a narrative with real-time conflict, emotional or physical or both, with travel from location to location, in which the through line is that you are solving a mystery by following clues. And licking things. And, well, <laughs> uh, we chose to lick things. You don't have to lick things. Uh, although, honestly, I can't imagine myself playing this game without licking things. But that's just me. Uh, if you prefer just, you know, hearing things or maybe having serious mental health difficulties because you can't stop reading minds. There are lots of, uh, honestly, trauma and weirdness and shocking other people or shocking yourself from what you find and how you solve the mystery is part of a lot of detective fiction and part of a lot of proce- police procedurals. And the reason Clarissa Marlowe is named Clarissa Marlowe rather than, say, Clarissa Harlow is that she's an homage to Philip Marlowe, who tends to get beat up and experience various traumas in the novels of Raymond Chandler, who I uh, admire. 
it's 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 about these kinds of detective stories, but it's also about exploring a very powered universe where lots of people have powers and the powers make sense. So, Rachel, given do you agree with that kind of take on the game? And do you feel that Mutant City Blues is is successful at what it sets out to do? Short answer, yes. Um, I you know, I'm I'm a person who's read plenty of mysteries and watched more Law and Order than I would care to admit of the various franchises. Um, so I kind of expected that this was going to be kind of like playing a Law and Order episode, but with superpowers. Mm-hmm. And I would say, yes, <laughs> that is, they delivered on that really nicely. And uh, what I found as a player is that the having to pay attention to clues actually kept me engaged in the descriptions of things more so than just a dungeon crawl kind of scenario because I knew there were going to be clues in the environments. And so that that was a really nice container for my attention. Um, but then getting to break out my superpowers periodically, also really enjoyable. And I thought there wasn't going to be self-discovery, but I think there still was. Um, oh, nice. That might just be a feature of all role-playing games. But I, I feel like it, <laughs> it delivered real well on the, on the solving mystery and the, ooh, I get to use my powers promises. I would argue that self-discovery is a feature of all the role-playing games that I care about. Shana, what's what's your reaction to this game, having now having played it? I had fun. I I had some doubts when like I heard it was sort of like cop-based. I mean, I knew that this is not an especially pro-cop crowd, but at the same time, like I was like, I don't know. I mean, I like superheroes, but cops, but it really ended up possibly because of the players more than the game. It ended up feeling much more heisty, I'd say, mm. even though we were solving crimes. And I did really enjoy the weirdness of the superpowers. Like, that's what I was here for. I'm definitely more on the mutant side than the um, detective side of my interests in um, fiction. But I enjoyed how they intersected. Yeah, yeah, me too. For me, it was it was very interesting to see this game come together because I had actually read this long before we had done the podcast. And I was, to be honest, a little lukewarm based on the descriptions. Because if you sort of look at it on the page, it's like, oh, if anyone just kind of asks for a clue, they get it if they have the right investigative ability. And the party has all of the investigative abilities. So kind of to that end, you could almost reduce this game down to, okay, I use art history. Is there anything? No. Okay. I use architecture. Is there anything? No. You know, you could, you know, the the power gaming of a gumshoe game sounds incredibly tedious in that regard. And then the dice where it's sort of the 1d6 and the power pools, I I wasn't sure, like, I I was sort of looking like, where, where is the, the game if you're not, but I was wrong. And to Robin D. Laws and Gareth Ryder Hanrahan's credit for for doing this, I think it really works when you say getting the clues is not the point, and that's actually a great opportunity for the characters to just kind of build that flavor. You know, like we got to hear about the ways in which you've taste things and kind of get some of those character things out of what was not actually a mechanical, or I would I would say this. Let me correct that. It was not a a random chance mechanism. But we were still kind of engaging with the mechanics of the game because there were those underlying abilities that you had. So 
yeah, it it was it was surprising, and I was I was very much happily surprised at how much there still is there, even if I feel like I'm almost just kind of handing out the raw clues to whoever's asking for them. They felt like cooked clues to me, like lightly fried or blanched. They were, you really- Well, you would know how they tasted, I guess. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. No, they were beautifully, this was just like a, a beautiful uh, recipe of of clues, a tasting menu, as it were. And one of the things I was really noticing besides, wow, this is working. I had my doubts, but this is good, was the- as far as I could tell, unusual amount of prep and unusual demands that this game seems from a player perspective to make on the GM. One thing that I have said frequently when I'm talking about role-playing games is that in some ways the system doesn't matter. Like if you have the right crowd, you can make anything work. Mm -hmm. You could make a system where you literally were flipping coins to make decisions work. And so from that perspective, I look at a lot of like there's sort of a range of games from the ones that are more, you use the dice to make narrative decisions or you use the dice to make success decisions, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so there are some games, and like, honestly, I like both. This is not a judgment on either, but like D&D is the classic using the dice to determine success games with all these crunchy rules. And, you know, it's really fun if you're in that into that sort of thing. And again, I am. But it's also really fun to have a game that's more like, well, we're here to tell a story. We don't actually care if you can add up seven D8s after adding 23 to a D20 roll. And again, I like doing that. But I also like saying, well, OK, we found the clue. We knew we were going to have to find the clue. Now it's what we do with it. It's how our characters interact. It's how we describe the taste of the clue and what we're doing, our weird 90s techno mindscape. It's much more about the story than the mechanics. And I do like that. Mm -hmm. I, I love the way that Obi's techno mindscape got described when we went in there. I just kept thinking of the movie Tron and of all the different paperback covers to William Gibson novels. It's good. As I was going for. Now, one thing that I didn't get to experience in in our actual play, just because none of the GMCs really did anything with dice, was the spending from the pool. How did that feel as players? Rachel, I'm kind of curious, because you, you're spending this ahead of time, like before the dice roll, based on a imprecise description of the difficulty, you have to choose to commit your resources. Yeah, I liked it because it, I mean, that felt like one of the, this big skill moments of play because I have to be calculating, you know, especially again, since we're a one off and I knew roughly how long it was going to run, I'd be like, okay, mm -hmm. how close to the climax of this plot do I think we are? How many more points am I maybe going to need? Probability wise, what, what could happen? Um, so I'm thinking particularly when I stirred Kerrigan's emotions when we were doing the interrogation and Clarissa's all like, oh my God, no, wait, don't do that. And I'm like, no, trust me, it'll work. And then I'm thinking, should I spend more than two points on this? Like, I just, yeah. this could go horribly wrong, but I, but I just needed a two or better on the, on the die. So I'm like, okay, I think, I think I got this handled. So that, that was a good, it felt like combination of skill and chance um, that, yeah. Good combination of skill and chance. Excellent. One of the things that I noticed, and Shana, you brought up, you know, I think some of the narrative stuff as well, was how I was saying no 
more often than I tend to in games. And this isn't even just like rule of cool, like whatever you imagine you can do. But as a GM playing, again, mostly PBTA games, I let the players take the narrative kind of where they want to go. And if even if I am doing investigative stuff, I want to like, anytime you're like, hey, I'm going to check and see if there's this. I want to say that you find something just because I'm used to the GM rolling with the players and sort of those snowballing things. But in this case, I was saying no. And I said, you know, no, there's no explosives on the outside. And, you know, it didn't come down to a battle of wills, but like if you had gone to uh, covalent labs, there would have been nothing there for you. They would have wow. stonewalled you completely wow. because I had no prep. Also, like literally what, what were they going to say? Like you're, if you roll up and you're like, Hey, I think someone is stealing from you. They're like, Oh sure. We'll open our doors to you. Random strangers. Like, no. So, <laughs> so that was, that was a weird experience. And I think it worked, but it definitely made me a little uncomfortable, or at least it was out of my comfort zone as far as what I think the relationship or what I've tended to do with the relationship between a GM and how the players are leading a story. Did you feel like, did you feel shut down in those moments or did it feel legit? I'm going to say I liked it and more than I thought I would because I've also GM'd and I'm used to saying yes, but it's kind of neat, especially because we had so many investigative abilities it's neat to kind of get to go through our entire giant Swiss army knife of abilities and be like, okay, it wasn't explosives. Let's try this. Not that. Okay. Let's move to a new location. Let's try these other things. Um, so I think it, I think it left a lot of room for us to keep questioning and innovating. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have now GM'd. I have learned to GM if I do know how to GM entirely from Fiona and Rachel. <laughs> and, uh, so you may hear your own opinions reflected back to you here. But it's it, I I was I was frustrated that Clarissa kept licking things and learning nothing. But I also recognized, as Clarissa, a professional private investigator, would realize that this is an investigative game and it is designed around solving a specific mystery. And the hey, I'm just gonna yes and that a GM can do in another kind of game where you just end up with a side quest you have prepared. And if you have an hour of play and the players aren't getting anywhere in the main quest, you just like drop them into another dimension where they, you know, fight animate soap bubbles for the control of Liechtenstein. You can't do that in a game with one central mystery. And I could see those, those moments of you get nothing, you have to turn around, were moments when I could see the frustration in the character, but that was fine. And I could really see the structure of the game and the way this game makes unusual demands on the GM. And that's not a flaw. I was going to say, I thought also, Fiona, that you did a really great job of kind of cycling through our abilities so that none, like you were very aware to not give any one of us too much downtime or too many no's in a row. So a lot of times the rhythm of it would be like, you know, Clarissa would try a thing, it would fail. I would try a thing, it would fail. And then Obi would lick the, lick the camera, you know, and we'd get the footage. And then the, right. in the next scene, it would be different people getting the no's, different people getting the yeses. So I think that that, um, for folks who are playing this, um, really important that the GM have that sensibility of moving around, like moving the nose around. Mm -hmm. So nobody is getting too many no's in a row. The nose um, and, and the tongue. The nose, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, let's hear it for security footage. It, it would it would actually was coming to mind for me and Rachel. You talked about watching a lot of Law and Order. Uh, I too have watched tremendous amount of Law and Order, but they did a Law and Order UK series, however many years back, that was recycling some of the U.S. Law and Order plot lines, but you know in London and Jamie Bamber was in it, which was pretty awesome. One of the things that they kept having to do was come up with excuses for why London's pervasive closed-circuit TV cameras were either not working or not pointing at a thing because it would, you know, it would just blow the mystery completely apart. And so in this, when I knew like, okay, Obi can look at these cameras, that was kind of a way to gate some of these clues. And I knew that like, okay, the Mina thing could have, you know, that that needs to be established. I can have Tom give that delayed. Or you could have gotten information about Carson, you know, losing his temper at one of the dolls. Ames could have told you that, but because you didn't really bother to chat up Ames, you just asked Ames for cookies, that ended up being a thing that I could give through the cameras. I think kind of the last thing on the saying no was when you got to Kerrigan's apartment. And again, I was not expecting this. I did not really have this prepped. And thankfully, in some ways, you failed the breaking in role. And then it was like, oh, it would take enough time to impersonate her. So let's go somewhere else. But I was, if you had broken in or got in there, I would have had to give you something. And the danger of improvising in a game like this is, would I end up giving you something that skips too far ahead or, you know, sort of messes with the pacing that I was hoping for in this session? And I think for, it's good that you kind of failed early, so we got a little bit of a side quest, but didn't spend too much time on it. But if you had cracked that door, I don't know what it would have been in there. So a thing I think I want to return to, and Steph, you wanted to bring up this as a topic. Shana, you mentioned not wanting to play as cops. And I think that that is a sentiment, I think, shared (laughs) by all of us here on this game. And Steph, you were talking to me a little bit beforehand about that relationship between superhero stories and law enforcement and some of the tensions and challenges there. Yeah, so cops and superheroes have a history both in-universe in various ongoing superhero stories and in our universe with, you know, critics and pundits and fans yelling at one another. Cops and superheroes have a complicated relationship that is characterized by several opinions I think are wrong and bad and bad for storytelling. One opinion is that cops are great, superheroes are basically cops, and superheroes are therefore great, and we should all celebrate law enforcement. I think in 2022, If you're listening to this podcast, you probably don't need us to tell you why that is not an adequate take on superhero stories or on real-life cops or cop stories. Another opinion, which I see a lot in my other life as a college professor person from people who read a lot of lit crit and not a lot of superhero stories, is the opinion that superheroes are just like super cops, but more so, and so they're very bad and they're fascist and they just enforce the law. Some superheroes try to do that. Most don't. There are many, many other stories you can tell about people who have powers and want to do good. And some of them, some of my favorites, are about superheroes who solve problems that state operated law enforcement either will not solve or cannot solve. And 
it's impossible for me to imagine a society where state-operated law enforcement can and will solve all the problems that have to do with physical force that come up. So how do you run a story that players want to be in, a story that's not a super grim, dark, everybody's a villain story? How do you run a story that's enjoyable to play and not heavily cynical, in which there are cops and there are powered people and there is visible physical conflict and you're not uncritically celebrating the use of force by the state and you're not uncritically celebrating violent revolutionaries. That is a challenge that anyone who's telling a story with superheroes and laws in it has to meet and every good storyteller solves it in their own way. We chose to solve it or address it by not role-playing law enforcement. And I think that was the right choice. We chose to look at the ways which exist in our society. Ask anyone who's had to deal with the restraining order mechanism in real life. A problem that exists in our society and in fictional societies full of superheroes where law enforcement won't get it done and can't get it done. And private actors have to figure out what's okay to do, what they're licensed to do, what's ethically acceptable to do in order to speak truth to power and be on the side of equity. Mm -hmm. It's also very much a a Raymond Chandler set of problems, although Raymond Chandler as a, a novelist could be more tragic or more cynical than at least I as a player would want in my games. Yeah. Shanna, Rachel, do you do you have any 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 thoughts in this area? Anything you want to add? Yeah, um, I mean, it's definitely something I've thought about a lot um, as a superhero fan um, and as sort of someone who thinks about problem solving in general, because like the fact is punching your problems doesn't usually work. And yeah, it's sometimes like difficult to be say I'm a big Batman fan and Batman is a billionaire who punches poor people like that's a very big oversimplification of Batman, obviously. And like, I do still enjoy Batman stories and I do enjoy like, cause he also has all the super powered villains, but like the classic Batman image is Batman sweeping down out of the darkness to punch a mugger. And the fact is there are systemic problems that probably created that mugger, but it is something that I think about a lot, sort of the ways that superheroes are and are not solving problems. I think that one thing that this game did really well was that it was very much the stakes were very um, city level. That we were not none of us could blow anything up with our minds. Basically, mm-hmm. we could secrete acid in some cases, but like our powers were very much street level. Were very much it wasn't so far out of the abilities of ordinary people that it felt like we were you know insanely overpowered. But at the same time, it did add some good flavor. And I do not know where I'm going with this. I love where you're going with it. I've got I've got more, but I want to hear from others first. Let me see if I can finish my thought into a reasonable place. Mm-hmm. It also did, I think, the th- a thing it did really well. I mean, I'm not sure if the mutants of this world are hated and feared like the X-Men are, but because our powers were all so weird, it didn't feel like we were like crazy god-like beings. It felt more like we were the weirdos sticking together. And that made us sort of using our powers and solving problems and also the fact that we were working for a union um, made me feel very good about our group of characters as heroes. Yeah, I think that it's 
I mean, I feel like I have to wrestle with this to some degree anytime I'm coming up with plots on this podcast. I mean, I think it's why you're going to see a lot of pro-union stuff, a lot of environmental things, uh, a lot of billionaires as villains. That's going to be, a, that's a through line on this show. And I think you were right, Shana, to, to point out, and I think it's interesting that because of the power levels being capped for these mutant powers, we never had the this, this situation where someone kind of did have the power to address things systemically and didn't. And I think that comes up in superhero stories, and it's something that always kind of bothers me when people have these great powers, and it's like, maybe you could fix more? Um, I don't know what sort of story that would end up being or kind of how that would reflect on the world, but at least sort of looking at what they can do versus what they are doing as a you know a social justice-minded individual, uh, I'm left disappointed sometimes. I am, however, going to raise the counterpoint question to that of how wise is it to have a super-powered individual trying to change a system, right? Since systems are systems. And to springboard off that quickly about our, I, I liked that our group had enough different moral spaces that we a little bit argued with each other, mm. right? Which I think is some of the best, you know, when we see the best super teams, they are also arguing with each other in the comic books, in the movies about the right thing to do, um, the right course of action. I think that's a more systemic view of things. Um, and we're not always focused on that because we're focused to look so individually and think of heroes as being so individual. And yet I think that our, our mini system of the team functioned really well because we brought in these different perspectives and we were like, wait, should we take the money? Should we turn Mina in? I mean, I think in a sense we were trying to navigate systemic injustice. Oh yeah. By not turning Mina in, um, and, and by trying to have things, um, kind of work out at least the way that we felt was fair. One of the reasons why I'm glad we were playing PIs, and I would absolutely play this game again, but I would play it again as PIs. Mm -hmm. It is designed as a cop simulator, as a police procedural simulator that feels like they were most of the way through writing the game and someone realized, hey, there should be a way to play this game and not be cops. And the PI mechanic felt like an add-on, and I'm so glad it was there because that was the add-on I wanted to live in. Because we were PIs, we had not, you know, taken a, a professional oath to turn in people who we thought would had probably committed crimes. And we had the moral judge, moral uh, ability to use our own moral judgment, which frankly is part of what superhero stories do. Shana, you were talking about, we've, we're talking about the Batman problem and the Superman problem. The Superman problem is why don't you just use your powers and fix the world? And we can save it for the back issues if you want. But there are a number of novels and, and comic books that address that, to my mind, very conclusively, which is that, that one person shouldn't and can't have that kind of power. The other Superman problem is that you can have a Superman level or a Silver Surfer level cosmic superhero RPG, and you can have a detective superhero RPG. But I think you actually can't have a cosmic detective superhero RPG. The distance between our world and the world building you have to do for cosmic power levels is so great that the inference is necessary for an investigation-centered game can't be a thing anymore. You have to have another kind of plot. And I, I like that the Quaid diagram and the character creation dynamic makes sure that you are creating heroes who you know are not Omega-level energy projectors 
and don't have the ability to you know, spin a planet backwards. Yeah. And, and I think that getting to sort of how the conclusion went with Mina, it was very deliberate for me that your goal was to find evidence that this wasn't an accident. Your goal was not to solve a murder. And part of that, then I was worried like, okay, are they going to just get evidence too early? And then it's like, all right, Tom, we've got this. And then it's like, you never meet the crime lesbians. But luckily there was enough sort of built into you of like, oh wait, we do kind of want it. It is a little bit of a whodunit. Like how did, where does this go? That you kept the thread going. But yeah, because you know, in the end you weren't cops, you weren't there to bring justice to Mina. You never actually heard her side of the story. You let her sleep. And and I, I appreciate you looking out for, for her rest. But it's what actually happened on that train car is not established, even 100% in my mind. Clarissa's hypothesis until we figured out Mina's motive was that this was revenge by a professional killer on Carson for selling the sin fuel. And Clarissa's major motivation for just keeping going until we found out who did it and, and, and how and, you know, what, what probably happened was to figure out if there was a, an actual, you know, murder for, murder for hire person running around who we would then need to collar. All right, we're going to close out the letters page. And the normal question that I ask is, when did this game make you feel like a superhero? And I think for this one, that might not really be appropriate, though if you want to kind of take it that direction, I won't stop you. When did the mechanics of this game and the way it's, it came together really make you feel like you were playing a private investigator? Let's go with that. And, and Shayna, uh, I'd like to hear your thought on this. Honestly, it was kind of both for me. I mean, like, Again, I really like weird superheroes, and I never knew that the power to lick a camera and then view its footage that way was one that I would want, but now it really is. <laughs> so, like, honestly, every time I just got to, or when I got to, like, put a USB in my mouth and then read it, like, I don't know why that appeals so, to me so much, but every time I did that, I just felt kind of awesome. Yes. And like, oh, and the fact that I could like literally put it in my put it in my mouth and then touch a computer and project it that way. I guess I felt like a cartoon character more than anything else. Mm. Like I feel like I've seen this on Animaniacs or something where you know, they'll like turn the tail and make it into a movie projector, um usually wacko I think. Right, right, right. So I kind of just I found that incredibly fun. I felt like it would be I felt like I'd be a really cool animated character, and that's really all I'm looking for in life. Nice. Aww. How about you, Rachel? Well, at one of the points when I felt most like a PI was actually the forensic accounting. <laughs> like, that it was clearly a forensic accounting clue. I'd taken that. I actually know what forensic accounting is. Yeah. Right. So I kind of know how it works, and I knew roughly what kinds of things we were going to find. Um, so that was probably one of my most PI moments, though also like the interrogating Kerrigan and stirring her emotions, delightful. And then I'm going to say my other most superhero moment was uh, the guy torching our car and just making him depressed, <laughs> which I feel bad about. But it only lasts for 10 minutes, listeners. I assure you, it only lasts for 10 minutes. 
felt bad about it at the same time was super effective, which is actually what I wanted for the character of Micah is like these powers that are actually kind of guilt inducing, but really workable. Yeah. I'd like that you recommended therapy to him. This is having been in a couple games with Rachel. The thing where their characters recommend therapy is, is kind <laughs> of a topos and they love it. <laughs> I, and I, I'm hoping for more of it. So the moment when I, as a player felt most like I was inside the mind of a private detective was when we were looking at the Quaid diagram and tried to figure out what goes with fangs, because we all knew that was a clue, although it took me a while to figure out how to follow the clue correctly. And thank you for that. Thank you for that so much. <laughs> okay. The moment when, uh, the moment, really the, the, the only moment, I think, when Clarissa felt like she was really being a superhero was the one moment when she got to use her combat powers, which she honestly enjoys doing when when she feels like she's getting a bad guy, which is spitting a glob of venom at Mike's face and just having that land. I know this is a game that is not combat heavy, but it makes the moments of combat fun or that one was fun. And the moment that felt most private detective-y was licking Mina's white puffy coat and discovering that there were traces of sin fuel on it. Mm -hmm. And Clarissa really felt like there's not really a purpose in this world. There's not a reason that she has a tongue, like her tongue. But if there were, this would be it. This is why she's in this line of work and where its rewards are. You stick out your tongue, you lick the coat, you taste the, the phosphates. All right. So we're going to move on to our more rapid fire section. And this is ongoings, retcons, and spinoffs. So for ongoing, the question that I will be posing to all of us in turn is, what else would you want to see from this system if you kept playing? You know, we only have two, two and a half hours total AP kind of recorded. There's a, there's a fair chunk more we didn't get to. What would you like to see? And Rachel, let's start with you. So I definitely, I want to see those risk factors. I mean, I think that would be really fun um, to have the characters kind of have to deal with um, not only external events, but these kind of internal events that are disrupting the flow of our crime solving. Yeah. I, and and I think that there is, you know, there is a system around having to roll for those and maybe taking stress. And looking back at what, how does this work with police procedurals and sort of what do you do besides just like grabbing at clues, having those side stories that come out of the GRFs and come out of those personal problems is a real way to enrich kind of the story and the characters that you're that we've got together. Steph, how about you for ongoing? Oh, I mean, all of all three of these characters were built with, you know, five or seven or eight hooks and there's no way a one shot gets all the hooks. If I were to play Clarissa some more, I would want to see her GRF, which is anxiety and and fear pop up more. She has two superpowers she did not use. One is one that she doesn't want to use except in emergencies, which is to make people afraid of her. She doesn't like that people are afraid of her anyway. The other one she loves using and never got a chance to use, which is she can touch things and make them go away because she's got secrete acid and that, that didn't really happen uh, successfully. I would love to have her secrete some acid and really even more than the GRFs, even more than her emotional difficulties, I would love to see her backstory with gallery owners and art snobs and underrated painters and installation artists and her time at NOSAD, the art school that she attended, come into play if she were going to have some more arcs. 
Stephanie, you're also making me think that we would be a great um, criminal organization because of your ability to dissolve things with the acid. So if we went on long enough, eventually I would want us to be covering up a crime <laughs> while solving other crimes. I, I think that Clarissa would be willing to cover up certain crimes, but it would be a, a bit of an internal struggle. How about you, Shana? Uh, what would an ongoing be for, for you or Aubergine? Well, I remember we were talking about, when we were making the characters, there was this subplot thing. Was it called subplots? Yes. Um, yeah, so where we were, I feel like I should apologize. Mira is definitely making noises that will get recorded. No, totally fine. We're into it. Uh, she's, she's on my lap right now. It's very cute. So, yeah, but we had these subplots. And, like, again, I gave Aubergine this mysterious backstory, but I definitely still put in some intentional threads, like that they are on the run for from something, that they there is a reason they are the way they are, that there's, like, backstory and, um, you know, and then they the fact that they broke into... I loved their backstory of how they got involved with the group, of they literally just broke in one night and didn't leave and started updating the security. I love that, too. I really loved it. It was delightful. I, 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 I cracked myself up. Yeah, so, like, I would have loved to see, um, if we kept going, I'd love to see that explored. I'd love to see, like, sort of what happened when those secrets were revealed to me and also everyone else. Yeah, I would say, you know, certainly the stress stuff, just, just like, having having that mechanism. I think what would be fun, especially because you're PIs, is to really start having relationships with maybe some of the more criminal elements, right? That, hey, you're vulnerable to someone coming and torching your car in the way that you wouldn't necessarily be if you were like the police department. You can have a personal relationship with the antagonists as a group. And that that could be kind of, that could be kind of fun to, uh, to explore and sort of see that. Getting sources. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. Sources and friends. Next up is retcons. So the question here is, is there a hack of this game? Is there a different maybe set of rules you might want to add on? Or is there just a different approach you might take to a part of it? Were you to play it again? Steph, why don't you go first this time? Okay. A campaign usually wants a way for characters to grow and change and develop. Champions doesn't really have this, but by the time you figure out how your powers work in Champions, it's been five hours anyway, and, and you don't need it. Most of the RPGs I'm familiar with that are designed for campaigns, either your characters advance in power or become more important in their society, or they change emotionally and psychologically and grow in the way that characters in, in novels tend to grow. Newton City Blues does have secondary mutation mechanics where your characters can acquire abilities, but it seems primarily designed f to simulate things like Law and Order or things like detective novel series where your protagonists don't change very much. And I would like a way for the protagonists or their team or their precinct or their firm to really change and grow so that after solving eight mysteries, your character isn't the same character you started with. How about you, Rachel? Uh, Retcon. I would have put more points into emotion control because that is so fun. <laughs> Just a whole lot of points and do it a bunch. Um, also, more broadly, I would actually like a little more magic because I'm basically a magic-based person. Um, and I saw that there was like a cult investigation, but there weren't that many magic options. So I would probably talk to you as the GM about hacking some of the 
investigative and power abilities to be more magical. Shana, do you have a retcon? I also sort of like there because the powers are all very specific and there was at least one that not only did I not take it, I forget what it was called, but it was like basically a um, figuring stuff out power, like where sometimes the GM might tell you that. Oh, cognition, right? Yeah, that one. You're extra clever. Yeah. Which, you know, both I didn't use. And once I started playing the character, didn't honestly feel that that true to them. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. They're clever in their way. But yeah, so I probably would have liked to understand the K diagram a little bit better and maybe skip that one. I agree the growing and changing thing. I mean, definitely doesn't make much of a difference in a one shot, but that would definitely be something that going forward, I would eventually start to sort of chafe about. My retcon is around interrogations. And we definitely had that multi-part interrogation with Kerrigan and that I had to take a break from, actually. And you know what? I left that in. The edit, I think that it's important to know for other GMs, if you're struggling with something and just need to, to think it through so that you can you know, have the best response, take that time, get a drink of water, and, and come back to it. But I think that interrogations are really hard. First of all, in this situation, you know, not being cops, not being able to detain people, not being able to threaten people with indictment, there's some leverage that maybe we're used to from these types of stories that you don't have. But it's both a conversation and a use of investigative powers. And I'm trying to both not tell you things to stay true to the character, but also tell you things because you have the powers you need to get the clues and the story needs to keep going. And that was very hard, and it's something I would want to get better at, but I think there's also maybe room to, to, to be a little bit more mechanical, of saying like, oh, do you want to use your intimidation investigative ability? All right, tell me a couple lines that works as the intimidation. Now I'll see, does that unlock any clues? How does she react? Okay, it doesn't. What's a different ability that you would want to take? And I I mean, Rachel, I think you and I were sort of squaring off for that interrogation for the most part. How did it feel on your end? Real glad I had emotion control. I mean, like fun in a sense and a little frustrating because I thought you were being very authentic in a good way. Like you're being very authentic to the character, which it which should be frustrating. (laughs) And at the same time, I'm like, okay, but I want this to move. Like, I'm sure there's information here. We have to get this information. So yeah, yeah, it was an interesting, it was an interesting blend of it. And I feel like if I hadn't had emotion control, that might have just spun for a while. The fact that I could then make a die roll and push into this, you know, kind of different feeling state so that things would open up that kind of saved the day for us, I think. Yeah. Interrogations are hard for me as a player. And when I'm GMing, I try to get around them because they're they're bad in real life. Interrogations are neither similar to things I do in real life, nor pleasantly impossible things I'd love to be able to do. And I think a challenge in games like like this one, at least for me, is you have to have them to tell this kind of story. But yikes. And if you're if you're the GM, you have to figure out either how to put the suspects who need to be or the witnesses who need to be interrogated in front of the characters who can do that or how to solve a mystery without having hostile witnesses and uncooperative suspects and ways of making you talk. And 
this is a hard enough problem to solve that it's, I, I would actually say, the one that the superhero stories I admire completely fork up the most. There's so many scenes, especially in superhero stories that go out of their way to not be about cops, where you have, you know, Logan putting his claws up to someone and saying, tell me where the bomb is, or this middle one goes through your throat. And in real life, when you do that, people will talk, but they'll tell you anything at all. So you don't kill them. It's a terrible, inefficient, as well as cruel way to get information. And in in real life, if you have to interrogate a hostile suspect, and there's a good deal of information on this, the way to do it is to take a whole lot of time and try to make friends with them and like give them a hot bath and a nice meal day after day and isolate them from their partners in crime. But that's something a small private detective firm that takes jobs for unions can't do. So I think where I'm going with this is, wow, interrogation is hard to simulate. (laughs) And that's why I lick things. Fair enough. Yeah, I have I have so many feelings about like yeah, it just it, it annoys me so much honestly every time I see that trope the, the the like torturing people for information like you know obviously you shouldn't do it because torture is bad and wrong but also it's not effective and that annoys me cuz they always act like you know I'm a badass character who's doing what has to be done and I'm like no you're just doing something that isn't going to work and yeah I I I did actually read a book recently. It was not remotely in these genres. It was high fantasy, but they had a char- someone torture a character for information and then get wrong information. And I was incredibly satisfied with that. And then they were like, huh, I guess torture isn't effective. Yeah. Who is the author? Can you tell us? That was Jen Lyons. It was the Chorus of Dragons series. Um, that's actually in the final book. So very, very minor spoiler, but um, yeah, the entire series I really liked. It's much, much queer than the cover suggests. Is that L-Y-O-N-S? Yes. On it. Link in the show notes there, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and there's there's a piece that's almost maybe a little bit of a of an ongoing, but they mention in the rule book for Mutant City Blues that there's a type of clue called a leveraged clue, which is, you know, someone won't talk, but then you can get the piece of information that then gets them to open up to you. And I think that is harder to set up, but I think is maybe a, a more interesting and and sort of moral way of doing these interrogations or sort of doing the questioning piece of the investigation. Yeah, and I'm going to tag on this just to say that I was looking at the interactions more as conversations than interrogations. Like I was thinking of interrogation as the me- me- the mechanic, but not in the sense of police interrogation. Yeah. Um, which is why there's a lot of Micah being like, I'm going to use my empathy and see how they're feeling. I'm going to build rapport. I'm going to, you know, because hopefully that smooths the way. But yeah. And, and you, could, you could see Clarissa realizing that maybe someone had to be a bad cop. And the only way she knows to be a bad cop is just to have people be scared of her because of how she looks. Yeah. And what she can do to paperback copies of Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> not sure we were the most effective good cop, bad cop ever because we're good, bad at being cops we and bad at being good and bad. At it and yet, and yet, solve <laughs> the case. I feel that might there have been a go. little bit of pity on Kerrigan's point, <laughs> part at that point. Hey, you, you take what you can get. Yep. All right. The last thing here is spinoffs. What from this game do you really like and would want to take into other games or see people build off of in RPGs that they're writing? Shana, I think you get to go first on this. Yeah, I mean, I I sort of mentioned it when I was talking about um, 
Okay, I totally don't remember what section it was in. Um, when I was talking about what I liked about sort of narrative control um, in RPG games, like one thing I really liked was honestly the fact that finding the clues was just taken for granted because obviously it is. Like in any game that there is a mystery, you know, the GM wants you to solve it probably after a certain amount of time, but still like the mystery isn't will the mystery be solved? Yeah. It's funny because it the like well in any genre like the mystery being solved is part of the genre conventions even and it's a game like you know it would not be a satisfying game if we didn't solve the mystery the question is how are we going to solve the mystery and that's so much more interesting than will we manage to find the clue in this scene and I like that I like sort of the keeping the focus on the characters and how they do things rather than if they succeed at the basic premise of the game I think that's a really great way of saying that. And I'm sort of realizing that in the in the way that you're putting it together, that it's the premise of the genre that the mystery gets solved, but the characters don't know that they're in a mystery novel. It, it It's to their world that it's still an open question. And so if you try to do this as a simulationist approach in your game, then you are going to run into that, like, oh, the mystery might not be solved. But like, we don't want to simulate private eyes, we want to tell a mystery story. And yeah. Rachel, uh, a spinoff from you. Yeah. So I would say um, what I would spin off from this is the the interplay of investigative abilities and clues and that we didn't have to roll for all our investigative abilities. It was just like if you were in a context where there was a clue that was unlocked by that ability and you said that ability, you got the clue. I appreciated that mechanic, so I would probably probably steal that for other games. I think it would go well in some other systems and just be like, in addition, I wouldn't do as many investigative abilities, but I think it's nice sometimes to just, if you're smart enough to say, hey, I've got this ability, um, you get you automatically get a clue. That was a nice reward mechanic. How about you, Steph? I love the way that the investigative abilities work in this game and the way that if you have the ability and the clues there, you find it. I think that's already in a lot of other games. If you're in a PBTA game and the GM doesn't want you to have to roll for something and you have fire sensitivity, you can just find out by asking whether someone set a fire. I I did like the way that works in this game. In this game, the investigative abilities are part of a whole structure for investigation plots, which I love, but don't really want to import to other games. I I just want to play this again, frankly. What I do want to import to other games from the street-level powers and specific non-cosmic powers and universe that this game builds in order to have mysteries in is the specific power mechanics and weird related to one another. Sometimes I hadn't thought of them or hadn't realized they could be good to tell stories with powers that are on the Quaid diagram in various corners. There is an entire subplot available in Mutant City Blues around people getting addicted to the endorphin control power, which allows you to give other people joy. There is a whole set of powers that people can have around being dangerous, around emitting radiation, around self-detonation. There is a set of powers which, if you wanted to do kind of a Flash-style story, around explaining physics that have to do with kinetic energy absorption and dispersal and stopping bullets or turbines or cars. I hadn't realized you could build a character around licking things until I saw analytic taste in the Quaid diagram. 
the thinking about how powers work and how powers interact is very specific to Mutant City Blues and could be used to tell stories in other systems that are not mystery systems. And I love it. So from my perspective, you know, we mentioned the investigative powers, and I think that's great. That's super portable to other systems. You can say, for the most part, don't roll for this. The same time I mentioned the idea of a core clue, if you're writing any sort of investigative story, that there is a thing that should be easily accessible to the characters that then lead them directly to another scene. That's wonderful and and portable as well. The final one I want to mention is very sort of specific. And listening back as I'm editing, I do kind of really love it is bullshit detection. And so this means that as you're talking with an NPC, you can tell if they're lying. Not necessarily the truth, but you can tell if they're lying. And I really loved to be able to do that because that lets NPCs lie and be realistic in that way and kind of gets in the way of the sort of assuming that the GM is always telling you the truth. And I think it was a great way of threading the needle. You don't always hear the truth, but you know if someone is withholding it, I'd want to use that elsewhere. Yeah. Okay, that I think concludes talking about the the mechanisms and the story that we have here, which brings us to the last section, which is the back issues. Here we are going to talk about superhero comic books and stories and other mediums that seem to be like Mutant City Blues. They kind of go with this game. So Steph, this is your department. I'm going to let you take over from here. Okay. And I don't know if I'm the only person talking here. I suspect I am not, but uh, I can kick it off. So there are a lot of detective-based superhero stories, a lot of private investigator-based superhero stories. But the exceptional aspect for me of this game isn't so much that there are detectives or crime solving or crime detection, which is just so many comics, so many bat comics, a whole lot of comics involving Luke Cage, for example, who begins as a, a hero for hire. The exceptional thing here is that these detective stories take place in a world where there are lots and lots of superpowers. Many, many people have mutant powers. And understanding settled science about how mutant powers work and how they have reshaped society above and beyond the existence of costumed heroes and nefarious evildoers, all the other ways that power having has shaped society, that is integral to the game. So when I went to look for what does Mutant City Blues simulate, what comic books are there that are like Mutant City Blues, I went looking for stories where lots of people who aren't costumed heroes and aren't obvious villains have powers and the cops and the gumshoes have to think about those powers and how they work. So I've got three recommendations for you. One is a series called Powers, which is the one that really made Brian Michael Bendis, who you may know as an architect of Marvel events, of uh, Legion of Superheroes, and now he's uh, writing a Superman book for DC, and of course of some of my favorite and some of my friend's least favorite X-Men comics from the 20-teens. <laughs> Brian Michael Bendis becomes famous as the writer of a series that's really more known for its writing than for its art called Powers, which is about solving crimes in a city where lots of people have powers. I can't imagine the Mutant City Blues people 
uh, weren't familiar with Powers. There is an Alan Moore joint from the 90s called Top 10, which is very futuristic and very ornate and very self-congratulatory in a way that I associate at this point in my life with Alan Moore. But it is a lot of fun. And I, I did enjoy rereading it for this for this podcast. It's called Top 10. And it takes place in Precinct 10 of a near future city where everybody, absolutely everybody has superpowers and crimes must be solved by cops with knowledge of it. But I think the series that really made me feel like I was in a Mutant City Blues game while I was reading the comic is an early 2000s series called District X, in which the former future cop and current X-Man and mutant Lucas Bishop, is seconded to the precinct office for District X, which is Mutant Town. It is loosely, loosely based on pre-gentrification Alphabet City and the Lower East Side. It is a part of Manhattan that is populated by mutants back when, in Marvel Comics, there were many, many, many American mutants, and most of them weren't heroes. And it is a hard-boiled police procedural in which a mutant cop and a non-mutant cop have to work together to solve mutant crimes. And the first arc, which is called the Mr. M arc, issues one through six of the comic District X, I think are very, very good. There are eight more issues after that that are I think not as accomplished and kind of problematic, but do check out District X if you want to see hard-boiled police procedural crime-solving stories where everybody has powers, even the non-heroes and non-villains, which is really what Mutant City Blues simulates. Anyone else want to want to chime in? Do you have something on your mind? I have a few. So, I mean, I'm sure that many people here have read the X Factor comics, both the Peter David ones, and I have very mixed feelings about Peter David, but I did enjoy those comics when I read them. And the more recent Leah Williams ones, which I have much more unambiguously positive ones. Those are so good. They're so good. Yeah. Very, very classically mutant-solving crimes, and often they are mutant crimes, or at least super-powered crimes. I also, specifically with the licking stuff to find stuff out part of this game, which may not be as much Mutant City Blues as us, made me think a lot about the October Day series by Sean McGuire, because Sean McGuire's always on my mind. But specifically, in her case, she's licking blood and getting sort of all sorts of information from that. But she is also a private eye and also has the tendency, you know, it's in a, a fairy world. The premise of it is basically she's a changely detective, half fairy, half mortal, and none of the fairies know anything about solving crime. So she basically takes having watched CSI as her training and is like, I'm slightly <laughs> better than everyone else at this. I guess I'm doing this. And also she has like amazing powers of looking blood and then learning everything. But because it's with the Fae, all sorts of people have all sorts of weird powers. She's also very good at like mustering her various crowd of people and bring them in to help her. And it's generally a really fun series. Well, really fun and really uh, emotion destroying, you know, <laughs> those go hand in hand. So that's slightly, it's not as superhero exactly. I mean, it's kind of superhero, mm. but they're Fae. I love that series as well. It's so good. Rachel. All right, just to represent the magic and occult side over here, I'm going to say um, not not Hardball Detective, but Doctor Strange and the Sorcerer's Supreme, 
which was a about 18 issue comic, give or take, now in graphic novel form. It's got magic. It's got time travel. They're figuring stuff out. There's a lot of occult stuff. Um, and then there's some fighting. So it's, you know, basically got all the parts of our campaign, but with loads more magic. Excellent. For me, I will quickly note sort of in our discussion about the responsibilities of people with superpowers and sort of how they in- interact in the world. Strong Female Protagonist, the unfinished webcomic by Brennan Lee Mulligan and Molly Ox- Ostertag certainly fits the bill as, as an exploration of that. But as far as the Mutant City Blues stuff itself, what it brought to mind, the Quaid diagram brought to mind for me is the works of Brandon Sanderson who writes mostly fantasy novels and his, I don't know, shtick or signature is very intricate magic systems that follow almost scientific rules. And his theory in in writing this way, and he's, he's talked about this, is that by having these precise things, you can make magic more directly tied into the plot and with cause and effect in ways that end up being really satisfying instead of being uh, feeling like deus ex or sort of out of the blue. He's written a YA series about superheroes. It's the Reckoners series. It's, I think, kind of YA The Boys, uh, which follows this kind of plot and world building that he's known for pretty well. I would say that if you want to read only one Sanderson series, Mistborn is kind of, I think, you know, the, his his high point. But either of those, if you like these supernatural systems that really do follow precise rules. That actually reminds me, I did have some recommendations for um, more comics that kind of deal with the responsibilities of crime fighting. And actually, there are two that are coming right out right now, both by Tom Taylor. The current Nightwing series, Nightwing doesn't have power, but he does have money, which as we know is, you know, the most powerful superpower. And he's trying to figure out how to use it in a way that's more effective than Batman do- did. And also Tom Taylor's Superman, Son of Kal-El, um, about John Kent, Superman's son, who is currently Superman, has been a lot of that, a lot of, you know, figuring out, because he's, you know, I guess probably Gen Z, millennial, whatever, time-bending age he's supposed to be. And he's trying to figure out how to be Superman and how to make the most difference and whether that means, you know, stopping bullets, rescuing flood victims, or trying to change society. And both of those have been really enjoyable and really good interrogations of the superhero genre while still being very much part of them and loving them. Great. Well, all of the things that we mentioned in the back issues and throughout this episode uh, are going to be in the show notes. So check them all out there listed. But I think that brings this Back Matter episode to a close. So I want to thank our guests and give them an opportunity for some self-promotion out there. Shana, where can people find you on the internet? So these days I'm spending a lot of time on TikTok at Shana Jean H. At Shana Jean H is also my Twitter and basically any account I have is going to be Shana Jean H. And that is that is Shana with one N. Yes, it's S-H-A-N-A-J-E-A-N-H. Check the show notes for spelling, as we say on this podcast. <laughs> and my TikTok has a lot of book recommendations, a lot of videos about my cat, and um, kind of a lot of miscellany. I I... I don't have a specific niche. I kind of just do what I want. Love that. Love that. Rachel, 
Thanks for having me on the show. You can find me, first of all, you can find me wherever books are sold. My first novel being Emily is the, probably the easiest to find, and then just follow follow the author links from there. My website is rachelgold.com, and uh, Rachel Gold is also my Twitter, because I got on Twitter early enough to get my actual name. So those are the easiest ways to find me online, and you know, if you read one of my books, tweet me, let me know what you think. And then read another one. <laughs> Well, if they read one, they'll probably read another one. I mean, I feel like I feel like the, no doubt at a certain point, there's a momentum that has been my experience. All right, Steph, that's uh, that's this game. Are we taking everybody out now? Uh, I don't know what you mean by that sentence. I are we going out for bubble tea, or are you taking us out? I am not. I am not a contract killer. I can't take you out for bubble tea. And sometimes I have the feeling that there's a tagline that I'm supposed to say at the end of Back Matter recordings, but there isn't. No, we have not established a good way. It just ends awkwardly. And I think that's appropriate for us as individuals. (laughs) Stay listening after this little musical sting for one more poem from We Are Mermaids by Stephanie Burt. And other than that, you'll hear us next time on Team Up Moves. Thanks, pals. Okay, it's the last episode of October, so this is going to be our last poem for now from Stephanie. She's going to be reading from We Are Mermaids, which is her new book, Out Now, from Grey Wolf Press. This poem is called Quotation Marks, and it's not just about quotation marks, but it is. The marks speak the poem. We have a soft spot for drama and for memorization. We like to share whatever we have been told. We liken ourselves to tadpoles, to works in progress, to fishhooks, to earbuds, to loquacious teens and to their vintage princess phones. We used to believe that being so good at belatedness, we might never have to get old, which was our mission or our curse. Though our true age is unclear, we have had equivalents in nearly every civilization, both on our efforts at sarcasm and our attempts at protests. Leave our single sisters alone. We come in several shapes, but are never heartless or pointless, and never entirely straight. If you ever see just one of us, wait. That's from We Are Mermaids, Stephanie Burt's new book of poetry out from Grey Wolf Press. Thank you for reading those for our podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This run, we've been playing Mutant City Blues by Robin D. Laws and Gareth Ryder Hanrahan, published by Pelgrane Press. We had a great time with this system, and we hope that you enjoyed all of the actual play and all of the discussion about it. We're going to take a week off to rest between runs, and then Stephanie and I are going to be back to play the two-player game, Our Mundane Supernatural Life, by V. Hendro and Haley Gordon, published by Story Brewers. If you want cozy superhero stuff, this is going to be cozy. This will be the coziest. Team Up Moves is a production of Fiona Hopkins and Stephanie Burt, copyright 2022. You can find us on Twitter as at Team Up Moves or at Fiona Wim and at Accommodatingly, respectively. Check the show notes for spelling. Our website, which has all of our episodes across all of our runs, is at teamupmoves.com. Go there for subscribe links so you never miss another episode. Our theme music is Play by Sleepyhead. Find more of their music at sleepyheadrockband.com. 
If you like what you heard, tell a friend or follow us on Twitter. Word of mouth is the best way to help shows like us grow. Thanks, pals. 